Father, we want to uh, want to know you more. We want to experience what it is to be filled with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we I pray for each of us uh, as we get into your word this morning that you would speak to us, men and women alike, as we're looking at a passage that's been often misinterpreted, misrepresented. We pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. The first two words in Ephesians 5 that we're going to be looking at this morning are wives submit. Yeah, all the guys went amen, right? Yeah. (laughs) This has been an interesting text down through the ages for people to misinterpret, misapply, And yet, we're going to do our best to take a look at this in context. Uh, If you know the way I like to teach, I I, I use four contexts when I teach. I use the historical context, the cultural context, the textual context, and the contextual context. And as I study, I try to parse through and to pick those up. We're going to look at all four this morning. Uh, and and go in a little bit more depth than I normally do to set up the text that we're going to be in. Because context is everything. Here's a story. An old man was walking along a country road in the deep south with his mule and his dog. A pickup truck comes around the corner too fast and knocks the old man, the mule, and the dog into the ditch. Sometime later, the old man is suing the driver of the truck. The attorney defending the driver is cross-examining the old man. Did you, on the day of the alleged accident, tell my client that you had never felt better in your life than you did on that particular day? Asked the attorney. The old man replied, Me and my mule and my dog were walking on the road. This gentleman came around the corner in his pickup truck. He knocked me and my mule and my dog into the ditch. Then he jumped out of the cab carrying a shotgun. He went up to my dog that was bleeding and he shot it. Then he went to my mule that had a broken foreleg and he shot it. Then he walked over to me with his shotgun and said, are you all right? And I said, you know, I've never felt better in my life. The moral of the story is if you take a text out of its context, you're left with a con. I love that story. It just cracks me up. I was in my office putting this together. I was just laughing, reading that again. Uh, But it's just a great illustration of the fact that we can take things out of context and end up with a mess. So here in Ephesians, last week, we looked at what it is to be filled with the Spirit, We talked about that. We talked about what it is to be captivated by the Spirit, motivated by the Spirit, and activated by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, here in this section of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul pivots. He goes from addressing the church in general to addressing relationships in particular. He talks about wives. He talks about husbands. He talks about children. He talks about Masters and slaves, which we could easily translate to employers and employees in our culture. 
And I want to note something about this going in. This passage is a biblical definition of Christian marriage as ordained by God. This is not something that is embraced by the world. It's not for worldly marriage. This is not something that it's not, it wasn't written for Muslims or Hindus or Jews. It wasn't written for people that have chosen to live together. It's not written to people who are courting, even Christians who are courting or dating. This is Christian marriage. And that's the context that it's written within. And we need to stay within that context because then we can begin to misapply. I want to note something else, and I want you to understand this, that yes, it grieves my heart that at times marriages end. I understand that. I also understand, and in principle, that no spirit-filled marriage has ever ended in divorce. It's not possible. It's, It's not a working reality. But it's only in the context of being filled with the Holy Spirit that we can interpret this text. As I mentioned last week, all of Paul's teaching in the book of Ephesians up to verse 18, where he says, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with wine. That's dissipation. You'll make bad decisions. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he gives the four participles. We'll look at those in a bit. But it's only in that context that we can understand and that we can apply these things to our lives. Because we see that over and over again, what Paul does is he takes the horizontal relationship and then he refers back to the vertical relationship because it's through our relationship with the Lord that these things can actually come to bear in our lives. So as we look at this, I want to read through verses 22 through 24 and then we're going to, we're going to break it down. Uh, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and, as, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, this was written, obviously, 2,000 years ago at a different time in history and to a different culture than the one within which we live. I think it's very important that we understand the context of this passage. I'm going back and looking at, beginning with the historical context, I want to look at Rome. I want to look at the empire. Understanding that back in about 27 BC, there was a transition in Rome itself. Rome went from being a republic through a civil war back at about 40, uh, and then there were a lot of events that took place. And I'm going to skip a lot of history here but went from being a republic to an empire. It had adopted a heavy-handed form of militaristic rule in all of its provinces. They needed to do that. In order to hold the empire together, the military was empowered to squash anything that came up, and they did. They were known for being very harsh. There were some perks to being part of this empire. Uh, Invading forces were kept at bay. The Romans had a powerful military presence. Uh, But government corruption, political turmoil were the norm. Uh, Just the turnover, the succession of emperors in Rome was significant. The empire in the mid-first century was a mix of sophistication and brutality. It was known for shifting between 
civilization, culture, strength, and power to terror and tyranny and greed. All of those came to bear in those days. It's been said that peace and prosperity in the empire was bought with the blood of conquered peoples. Those conquered peoples were oppressed. They were heavily taxed, often enslaved. Slavery was a huge thing in the first century. Rome set up puppet governments. Those are governments within governments that the empire ruled. For instance, with Herod, King Herod the Great. He was the king in Judea, uh, but it was a puppet government. The people always knew where the power behind the throne was because it was still Rome. And even a hint of rebellion or insurrection, the Romans would come in and project lethal, deadly force and restore order. They were known for that. They solved problems with their broadswords. That was it. As instability increased and the empire expanded, the the Romans relied more and more on their military for stability. The Jews didn't have the same rights as citizens. They were treated as lower class citizens. We see that twice in the book of Acts come to mind. One is when Paul and Silas are in the Philippian jail there in Acts chapter 16, and and they had been beaten with rods the night before, and then there was the earthquake and all of that. And then the next day, the, the guys in the city had found out that they were Roman citizens. They weren't just Jews because Paul had dual citizenship. And they came in and essentially, I'm paraphrasing, they said, pretty please, would you leave? No longer do we have the authority over you we thought we had because you're a Roman citizen. The other is in Jerusalem when Paul had returned from his second missionary journey. No, it was his third. Yeah, when he had returned, he went to Jerusalem and there in the crowd at the temple as he preached Christ, the people mobbed him and the soldiers came and drug him out of their midst. And when they did, Paul's interaction with the soldiers, as they were preparing to give him 40 stripes minus one, was, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. They backed off. They treated him differently. But the Jews and Christians, people that were not Roman citizens, had a more severe treatment in the empire. The emperors themselves were an interesting bunch too. And bear with me, I'm laying this history out because you've got to understand the the different context within which Paul is writing when he's writing the book of Ephesians. So starting back, there was... Back, as I mentioned, in 27 BC, there was a guy by the name of Octavian. And he had been consolidating power in the empire. He was being raised up to lead the empire. And he was essentially put into power by the Senate, the Roman Senate. And he was declared to be Caesar Augustus. Augustus wasn't his initial name. It was Octavian. Coincidentally, at that time... When Octavian was coming to power, when Augustus was beginning to rule the empire, Halley's Comet showed up. I mean, we still see it in our times. Back then, since Octavian or Augustus was the successor to the throne from Julius Caesar, he identified Halley's Comet as being Caesar's spirit, which was now being borne away to the heavens. And what he did was he instituted the belief in the empire 
that the emperor was a god, that he was deified. At that point, what was called the cult of the emperors sprang up, and every emperor after that would demand to be ruled or to be worshipped as God as he ruled. After Octavian or Augustus came Tiberius. He was an unpopular uh, emperor. He spent the last 11 years of his life living in debauchery on the island of Capri. Uh, Tiberius was the guy that appointed Pontius Pilate as prefect in Judea, a governor. He was the guy that was the emperor when Jesus was crucified, when he was put on the cross. Uh, He was uh, an iron-handed ruler Following Tiberius was a guy by the name of Caligula, who was a nut job. That's a Greek word. No, he, was, he was insane. He was crazy. And he was absorbed with power. He would come in and he would demand that people grovel at his feet, kiss his feet. And, and he, was, he, just, he was power tripped to the max. He was offended because the Jews, they had actually been granted an exemption from having to worship the Roman gods, but the Jews would not worship the emperors. And he was offended. He was so offended by that that he ordered statues to be made and to be set up in the temple of God in Jerusalem. Ended up being assassinated before he could get that brought about. But Caligula was a bad dude. After that was a guy by the name of Claudius. He was a competent ruler, but he was poisoned by his fourth wife, a woman by the name of Agrippina. Now, Agrippina had a son by a previous marriage, and his name was Nero. He'd become emperor at the same time as the apostle Paul was planting, strengthening the church at Ephesus. Remember, he spent three years there. We see that in the book of Acts. And at that time, Nero ascended to power. In 64, after these things were written in Ephesus, to Ephesus, a great fire would break out and devastate Rome, and Nero would find a scapegoat in the children of God, in the Christians. And he was the first one that instituted a major, major persecution against the Christians. He would use them as torches to light his parties. He would use them as fodder for the animals in the arena, entertaining the people at the Colosseum. He was horrible, and he hated the church. He hated Christians. He committed horrific acts of violence and persecution against them. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that he slaughtered, quote, a great multitude of believers. Three years earlier, all under house arrest, Paul wrote this letter, the letter to the church at Ephesus in 61. Now, so that's what's going on in, out, in, at this time in history. And, and the Apostle Paul's worldview is that of a Jewish-born Christian, he, like I said, he had dual citizenship, living in the first century in Greco-Roman culture because the influence of Greece was still there even though the Romans were in power. And this is the culture into which he was now writing. So to understand this, we shift from looking at the historical context to now the cultural context. Rome, as I mentioned, was known for being heavy-handed with the Jews, and as time went on, more and more so with the Christians because of the way they lived. Initially, they confused the two because they looked at Christians as a sect that had sprung out of Judaism. 
But as time went on, they began to see that Christians were entirely distinct from Judaism and that they lived differently. Uh, there were between, somewhere between 5 and 7 million Jews that lived outside of Israel during this time. They had integrated into the society as yet another religion in, in a whole pantheon, as I mentioned, a whole bunch of religions. Christians didn't easily integrate. Tensions were rising. They were rising with the Jews across the empire. Culminate, they would culminate in 66, just a few years after this, when uh, the revolt in Jerusalem would take place. The Roman army would sweep in. They would wipe out Galilee. They would move south. They would wipe out uh, Jerusalem. Eventually, it took them four years after a siege and all that. But things were going very tough in those days. The point in this is that Christianity was different. By the mid-first century, followers of Jesus being distinct from their Jewish counterparts, had become targets for persecution. And the surrounding culture was shocked at how the Christians lived because these people, Christians, again, you'll know them by their love. And living, loving lives, extending love to those around them, at the same time, they refused to worship the gods of the Greek and Roman pantheons. They would not do it. They refused the emperor cult worship, seeking rather to worship their own king. His name was Jesus. That confused the Romans because differing from Judaism, they looked at this, at the Christians worshiping their own king, as a treasonous thing. They looked at it as their, they remember when Jesus was in the temple and he was teaching and the religious leader said, we have no king but Caesar because they were questioning him. Well, that whole notion caught on and the people were beginning to look very warily at the Christians. So they refused emperor worship. They were worshiping their own king, confusing the Romans. They refused to be identified with a culture where traditional Roman respect for family was breaking down. It was giving way to childless marriages, to divorce, adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, pedophilia. It was a thing. It was an accepted thing in the Roman Empire. Now, into all of this, the Romans were particularly interested in maintaining law and order because that helped them to keep their power consolidated. Culturally, this was accomplished by breaking society down into its most manageable pieces and maintaining law and order there on that basis. The most manageable piece of their society was the household. And so theirs was, now, a, a Roman household was very different from the nuclear suburban type households that we have here in our country. Uh, those are the things that we're used to. Theirs was, they were clans. These people lived in extended families. And it could be a larger group of people, husband, wife, perhaps parents, children, very often slaves. Many of them had servants. Order was maintained in the household by giving absolute authority to the husband, the father, and the owner of the slaves. He was the guy that could rule with a rod of iron in his household. For instance, if his wife gave birth to too many girls, too many female children, too many daughters, he could order that infant to be put out and exposed to die. 
that's still a practice. Stacy and I saw that practice when we were doing mission work in northern Thailand in Burma. We, we were exposed to a, a family where the woman had run from her village because she had twins and she was expected to kill one of them. They even had a ceremony for it. I'm not going to go into that. It was a, just a horrific thing. In a Roman household, if the son became unruly and was disobedient, he could be thoroughly beaten. Or if the father elected, he could have him thrown into prison. He was the ruling authority. If a slave escaped from the household, was captured, he could be executed. The, the, the head of the household could just say the word and he would be put to death. Into this comes the treatment of women in the Roman Empire. The Roman ideal was for women to pass from subjection to their fathers to subjection to their husbands. The thinking was never, while their men were alive, was feminine subjection to be shaken off. It, it was, they were supposed to be in subjection their entire lives. Now, for Christians with a Jewish heritage, the, the Roman way of life, life fit loosely with the rigid patriarchal system of Jewish family rule. You read about that a lot in the Old Testament. Now, the, interesting, the prayer in, in, in those days and in these days uh, from the Jewish prayer book, uh, it's often cited as evidence of the misogynistic attitudes of the Jewish people, where it says, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, who has not made me a woman. The point is, in both cultures, first century women had little in the way of rights. The wife was regarded not as a person, but as a piece of property. She's looked at as chattel. She wasn't allowed to make decisions on her own. She had no rights to uh, function in society other than being a mother and a wife. She couldn't choose what religion, because there were plenty of them, to follow. The father and husband decided what everybody's religion was going to be. She had no rights whatsoever. So as far as women and children and slaves were concerned in the first century, in that culture, they did not rate at all. They didn't show up on the radar. They were not part of it. That's the cultural context. And then came Jesus. And he turned everything upside down. And to this time in history into this place in the mid-first century Roman culture to this peculiar people who had responded to the gospel of Christ, to these people who had been set apart and filled with the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul, Paul declares in verse 22 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The question becomes why, knowing both Roman and Jewish culture dictated wifely submission, why did Paul need to state this? It would seem that he's stating the obvious. He's not. The answer is found in the textual context. Again, moving through these different contexts, now looking at the textual context. I want you to understand something. This, as you probably know, this verse was not written in English originally. It was written in Koine Greek. 
the grammatical structure of this is significant. By the way, some women hate this verse and they hate it too much. Some men love this verse and they love it too much. At those two words that we began with this morning, wives submit, many bristle at the thought. As I mentioned, this was written to Christians. This is not written to people in the world. This is written to people who are children of the king. This is written to people who are filled with the spirit of God. When it was written in Greek, the word submit was not there. It doesn't exist in the text. And you're probably thinking, well, why didn't I learn about that when I married this guy? (laughs) This changes everything. Not so fast, ladies. Uh, The answer, though, for the answer, we've got to look in verse 21. In verse 21, he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So just as a side note, when Paul speaks about fear here, it's a reference to a mutual submission born of a profound respect and awe, an attitude of worship towards God, which is far above that of the Greek and Roman pantheons of gods. It's far above the emperors and the cult of the emperor worship, that whole deal. It's far above the God of the Jews, who in their eyes remained veiled. We're told that in 2 Corinthians, that a veil lies over their heart because they missed Messiah. So as we read this together and look literally at what it has to say, dropping that word out of verse 22 because it doesn't belong there, he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. As you look at verse 22, the, ber- the verb is missing. The only way that you can make sense of verse 22 is to borrow the verb from verse 21. And you're thinking, well, Pastor John, why are you giving me this big English lesson? I just, you know, I wanted to just come to church and worship the Lord. Well, it's important, guys. You got to understand there's a point in all of this. Verse 22 cannot be taking, taken on its own. It is not standalone. It is not wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. It has to be taken. It has to be connected to verse 21 because that word submit is not there. However, it is implied, but it's only implied in light of verse 21 and mutual submission to God. It has to be interpreted that way. It's the only way that the text works. So let's broaden our understanding a little bit on this and let's look at the contextual context. That's the last of the contexts that I want to look at this morning. So last week we looked at the outworking of being filled with the Spirit in verses 19 through 21. We looked at four participles. Remember I talked about participles. Now I want, you to, I want to explain to you what a participle is. Imagine a clump or a cluster of grapes, Okay. Uh, Each of these participles, we looked at speaking, singing, thanking, and submitting. Each of these is a cluster of grapes, and they need a branch to hang on. That branch is found in verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. What does being filled with the Spirit of God look like? It looks like speaking, 
singing, thanking, and submitting. We're talking about submitting this morning. It can only be understood in light of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So as we look at this, we understand, and we talked about briefly last week, that each of these participles is relational. We looked at last week the horizontal relationships, the relationships we have with one another. He's talking about speaking to one another. He's talking about submitting to one another. We talked about the vertical relationship, the relationship that we have with God when he speaks of singing and thanking and thanksgiving towards God. So here in verse 22, when he says, wives to your own husbands, submission is implied. He's talking about the horizontal relationship. But he also says, as to the Lord, that's the vertical relationship. You can only understand the horizontal relationship. Wives submit in light of, yes, mutual submission, but also in light of the vertical relationship. This is a product of her relationship with God. Make sense? You following me? All right. This is really important, gang, because if we do this, we're not going to get it wrong. So, Essentially, what had happened was the gospel, which means good news of Christ, it had come and it had actually, Jesus had set women free. He elevated women to equal status as men. Up until that point, they were property. Up until that point, they didn't count. And he gave them value. He gave them standing. They now had rights. And wifely submission was something that Paul, under the guidance, under the inspiration of the Spirit, put into place because what was happening in Rome... Now, think about it. You're a woman in the first century, and you have been subject to a guy all your life, mandatory. And now the word comes, Christ has set you free. The word of God tells us that there's no, no, no longer Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. But we're one in Christ. You have been elevated. That would be so radical for these women to hear. And, and, and they're like, Yahoo! I have got an identity in Christ. I have got a life. I am somebody. Their husband... And think about it. He didn't know this was coming. It would have freaked him out. They would have been really kind of sideways about the whole thing. What do you mean? You're taking off the basic fundamental element of rule, of of keeping law, keeping order in our home, which is something that if the government gets a hold of and these women overdo it, you know how they're going to solve this problem. So the men would have been upset about it. The women would have been jubilant about it. And Paul, the apostle, saying, hold on a second. Wives, submit to your husbands. Not because it's mandatory. Not because you have to. You have equal value. But submit to your husbands the same way that you submit to the Lord. It's not about mandatory uh, obedience in this thing. It's, it's, that, that's dictated by history and culture, misogynistic attitudes towards women. It's not about that at all. This submission is, 
It's not equal to the submission that you have to the Lord, but it is valuable. In other words, that's absolute submission that you have to the Lord. There are parameters to wifely submission. We'll talk about that. But now, submission is a spirit-filled, as we've looked at, voluntary act of loving obedience, not towards their husbands, but towards God. As an expression of her heart towards God, as an act of worship towards the Lord. Why? Verses 23 and 24, Paul gives us the reasons. He says in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, horizontal, as also Christ is head of the church, vertical. He links those again. You can't unlink those. This is, again, that's why this is for Christians in marriage. He's talking about the relationships we have one another being a product of the relationship that we have with him. He says, and he's the savior of the body. Now, going back to verse one, if you want to look at the greater context, the contextual context, we read, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's the context. What that means is that you become more like Christ. What is Christ like? He's loving. How did he demonstrate his love? By submitting to the will of his father and sacrificially giving himself on the cross. That's how he loved us. Greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. So that's the context of this submission that we're talking about between wives and husbands. You might be thinking, well, you don't know my husband. I'll consider submitting to him as soon as he gets his act together. Unless there's abuse, that attitude totally misses the point. Because godly, wifely submission is not based upon the husband. It's based upon the Lord. That's proven out. First Peter chapter 3. Peter talks about it. He says, wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some don't obey the word, in other words, maybe your husband's a slob. <laughs> I'm adding that. But he says, if, if they don't obey the word, that they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. That fear, again, being implying that reverence, that awe, their relationship with the Lord. Horizontal and vertical. The point here, ladies, is you, as an imperfect yet spirit-filled woman who are voluntarily, uh, are, you're to voluntarily be in subjection to an imperfect man as a testimony to your submission to a perfect God. I'll say it again. You, an imperfect yet spirit-filled woman, are to voluntarily be in subjection to an imperfect man as a testimony, as an act of worship, to your submission to a perfect God. It's called headship. That's what this is about. When he says the husband is the head of the wife. I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> Something that happened to me a number of years ago. I missed jury duty. <laughs> and, and I found out that I missed jury duty when I got a summons from the judge. 
come to court on whatever day it was. And uh, so I went and I showed up at court and the judge was talking to somebody else. He was working on another case. It was coming up on noon and, you know, it was, uh, courtroom was mostly empty. <laughs> and the judge finished up with the other guy and he, his eyes just barreled into me and he said, Mr. Terry, he's, he's mic'd and it's coming out loud over the speakers. And I was like, yes, your honor. <laughs> I had totally forgotten about my jury summons. He goes, don't tell me the dog ate it. I said, no, your honor. I, I simply forgot. It was pinned with a magnet to my refrigerator, but I got so much junk on my refrigerator. I didn't see it. He said, do you understand if everybody forgot and he just lit into me, if everybody forgot about their jury duty, we'd never be able to conduct a trial. You have a civic responsibility. And he went into it. And I was just kind of wide-eyed thinking, oh, is he going to throw me in jail when he's done with this? You know, I was kind of, kind of frightened about the whole thing. So he said, I'm going to put your name on a list and this better not happen again. And I'm like, yes, your honor. You know, <laughs> so I was pretty upset by that point. And he looks at the bailiff, a guy, a sheriff's deputy, and he goes, we're going to break for lunch now, bailiff. And, and he goes, okay. And the bailiff walks out of the room. And the judge stands up. He takes off his long black robe, you know, because he's been up on the little platform thing, steps off the platform and walks over to me. And he goes, hey, John, how's it going? <laughs> and I was like, what just happened? And I said, I'm good, John. How's Judy? <laughs> This is his wife. I knew his wife from a grad night thing we did with my daughter. Anyway, we had a wonderful talk. While he was wearing that robe, here's my point. I was in total subjection to him. He had authority to do as he wished with me, within the law, of course. But the minute that robe came off, we were once again equal, fully equal. Headship in the body of Christ is like that. It is when God puts upon the man certain responsibilities that he doesn't put upon the women. And when God does that, he is giving that man headship with his wife. Now, with that responsibility, notice I'm not saying authority, because like I said, this doesn't have anything to do with power. This is not so that the guy can power trip his wife. But it's so that he exercises the responsibility that God has given him. And his wife, by submitting to that, is submitting to the Lord. Do you understand how that works? I was submitting to the judge, but greater than that, I was submitting to the government. I was submitting to the law. So taking it a step higher, you got to understand the submission thing. It's not about your husband. It's about the Lord. And as you submit to the authority, or not the authority, but the, the responsibility that God has given him to be the head of your family, you are actually honoring God in doing so. That's what headship is. It has little to do with patriarchy. It has little to do with control. It has little to do with power. Now, something else he says here, he says, wives submit to your own husbands. Godly submission is not between all men and all women. 
you got to be real clear on that. This is something between a wife and a husband. There are limits to godly submission, and they must be carefully applied. Understand that. This is not one size fits all. This is Christian marriage. This is Christian wife, Christian husband, or even unbelieving husband, but this is her attitude towards the responsibility that God has given her husband, and he may or may not be carrying that out. That doesn't change the fact that he still, except for, and we'll talk about certain instances, he still puts submission on the wife. When he says, as to the Lord, there's nowhere in Scripture where a woman is compelled to submit to any other man. So what is headship in a biblical sense? Let's look at that. The headship meant here is that of leadership by love and example. This is very much like the headship that Jesus exercised in the upper room the night before he went to the cross when he took off his tunic and he wrapped himself with a towel and he got down and washed his men's feet. What he said there was significant. And we get a a, a pretty good indicator of what headship looks like for us because he implemented things there in the upper room that should overflow into our lives. He said, look, a servant's not greater than his master. Neither are you greater than me is what's implied there. He said, I've done this to you as an example implying when I'm done, when I've gone, and when you are used to go out and head the Christian church, when you are going out and you are used of me to do this thing called apostleship, you need to understand that what that looks like is you go low. And husbands, who has the greater responsibility here, a submitting wife or being a godly husband? or being a husband whose, whose attitude of his heart is that of serving his wife, of coming up underneath her and elevating her. We'll talk about that next week. And no, guys, you don't get to stay home and watch the game. The point is, it's all about servanthood. Whenever God raises up positional responsibility, it's about servanthood. It's part of the upside-down kingdom that we live in. Understand that submission and headship are kingdom principles. They're central to the way that God has ordained order in the kingdom, order in his church, order in business, society, and order in marriage and family. It's no longer I have to do it because that's what my culture dictates. It's I get to do it because that's what my Lord loves. That's that's where my Lord is honored. Some other examples of submission and headship that we find in God's word. We see in Genesis that all of creation is in subjection or submission. Those words interchange to God. Christ living on this earth. I only do the will of my Father. He was in complete subjection voluntarily to the Father. The church, looking at here, were subject 
to Christ. God raises up leadership within the church and godly leadership he calls us to subjection to. Children to parents, we'll look at that. Young men to older men, slaves to masters, citizens to government, every Christian to every other Christian. That's mutual submission. And here, wives and husbands. He says in verse 24, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. And guys, you've got to understand, when he says in everything here, that doesn't mean carte blanche. <laughs> That's not everything. You've got to understand the, 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 con- the context of what he's talking about here. I want you, but in, in order to understand that, understand too, when you look at these things, at, at the list of submission and, and headship that I just gave you, and you look at here in Ephesians chapter 5, none of these are in reverse order. It's not masters being in subjection to their servants, to their slaves. It's not Jesus being in subjection to the church. It doesn't work in reverse. Why? Because it's the God-ordained order of things. This is about, submission is about order. It's not about power. It's not about being more important. It's not about favor. It's about order. It's about the way God has set things up so that they run well. It has nothing to do with misogynistic attitudes. A woman can be submitted to her husband and be the CEO of a major corporation. A woman can be submitted to her husband and and be involved in a career or involved in this or involved and and be championing a particular, whatever it is. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with order in our marriages. It has to do with God honoring order in our lives. It has to do with order in the church. The church is subject to Christ in everything he says here. That he says, let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. And we as a church, we're subject to Christ in everything. In other words, we don't get to submit to him only when we want to. I know people whose attitude, it might not be spoken, but people whose attitude is that. I'll submit when it's convenient. I'll submit when I feel like it. There's a slippery slope. I'll submit when there's something in it for me. It's not about that. The same applies here to wives submitting to their husbands. In light of mutual submission, it's not about picking and choosing. That's why he says in everything. Now, I I, I don't want to end this study without looking at some obvious exceptions to a wife's obligation to submit to her husband. First is when a husband asks or expects his wife to sin. It doesn't work that way. She has no obligation to submit under those terms. Or when a husband breaks the marriage bond through adultery. She's not expected to submit to that. That's crazy. When a husband is physically or emotionally abusive 
and endangers the safety and the welfare of his wife or his children. Submission is not in play at that point. But the point here is that submission and headship are principles for living in harmony in our relationship with God, our relationships with one another. It's a vital aspect of life in the body of Christ, a vital aspect of life in a productive marriage. It's a vital aspect of honoring God. Yeah, we'll look next week at what it is for husbands to love their wives because guess what? In this culture, looking at the cultural context, a husband had no expectation to love his wife. She was property. He'd love his wife like he loved his car. He didn't have a car back then. He loved his wife like he loved his camel. How's that? That's better. The point is, is that she was looked at as property. He, there was no expectation. He had no compulsion to love his wife, to honor his wife. And before I get into next week's message, I'm going to stop. <laughs> but truly, there's both sides to this. God honoring marriage. As we wrap up, I want to also talk about uh, those that perhaps maybe you're watching online or are here and you don't know the Lord, or perhaps your, your life has been far from him, perhaps you're struggling, perhaps you're wounded, perhaps you're overwhelmed, perhaps there are things going on that in your heart of hearts you just detest. You got to understand that all of this is in the greater context of the love of Christ. He loves his bride. We are his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. He gave himself up for her. If you've been walking far from home and you're a believer, come home. Let him pour out his love on your life. Let him bind up your wounds. Let him pour out his spirit in fresh ways and empower your life in a way that perhaps you haven't known in recent times. Perhaps you've never walked with the Lord. Perhaps you've never given your life to Christ. Let this be the day. The Bible tells us that at one point, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will either bow the knee willingly in subjection to him. Or you will bow the knee at the last day in judgment. You will bow the knee either way. I'm not there to freak you out or to cause you to fear, but it's a healthy thing. If you don't know Christ to know that the options are not good. But understand his love. Understand that he died. He went to that cross for you. That when he hung there and he said those words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because he was wearing your sin, wearing my sin in order to redeem us from death. That's the love of God in action. As we submit to him, 
Perhaps today is the first day. I want to encourage you, if you've never submitted to him, if you've never given your life to him, let it be today. Pray a prayer that's something like, God, I have lived my life away from you. I've lived my life in rebellion towards you. And I realize that Jesus died to set me free, that he died for my sins, that there was no way I could atone for them myself. And I'm asking you to come into my life, to come into my heart, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me new life. If that's what you're doing, pray that prayer. Turn from the old life. Let the weight of your life down on Jesus. And I guarantee you on the basis of God's word, he will do it. If you've been running from God, let this be a day of new beginnings. Let him give you a fresh filling. Let him work. Let him have his way. Stop rebelling come to the cross. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these passages, I just, I absolutely marvel at at the power of your divinely inspired word. And Lord, I marvel at the way you put these things together 2,000 years ago in a culture at a time in history that were foreign to us and yet they come to bear and apply in our lives today. God, I'm so grateful for that. I praise you this morning. We praise you this morning that these things actually come to bear in our lives and that you leave the choosing to us. I pray, Father, for each of my brothers, my sisters here in this room, watching online within the sound of my voice, that we would choose wisely. We thank you, Lord, for this passage. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you set up order in your kingdom, order in your church, order in marriages. And let our aim be to glorify you, to bring glory to you in our lives. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.